the Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 37 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. I want to talk about Article 1, Section 14 of the Michigan Constitution. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what the podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well become outdated by the time I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal needs. In Ray Oaks versus Kent County Department of Social Services, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1974. This particular case is interesting because it helps better delineate which parts of a court hearing is determined by a judge and which part is determined by a jury. Here's the fact pattern issue. Kent County Social Services had removed a child from the custody of her father due to neglect. Now, the mother was nowhere to be found, and the father was convicted in court for, quote-unquote, taking indecent liberties with his minor daughter. For that reason, the court made the child a temporary ward of the probate court. Over 18 months and six hearings that were subsequently held to review the temporary wardship of this child, there was a lack of improvement of the father's ability to provide care for the child, and it was coupled with how well the child was thriving in her foster home that it ultimately led the court to continue the child's wardship. In February of 1972, at the last hearing, and the hearing which brought forth this lawsuit, the Kent County Department of Social Services petitioned the court to make the child a permanent ward of the county. The father requested a jury trial to determine whether the court had the jurisdiction to end his parental rights and, thus, making the child a permanent ward. The demand for a jury trial was denied, the hearing proceeded, and the court ultimately terminated the parental rights of the missing mother and the inappropriate father. The Michigan Court of Appeals started off their opinion by noting the right to a jury accrues only in the adjudicative phase of juvenile court proceedings and not in the dispositional phase. The court held that the disposition of the hearing on the child is the sole authority of the juvenile court judge. 
The Court of Appeals believed the hearing where the father was denied a jury was part of a dispositional phase, thereby not entitling him to a jury. Side note, we're about to throw around some terms, adjudicative phase, dispositional phase, but let's make sure that we understand the two. Let's talk about adjudicative phase first. This phase determines whether the child should become the responsibility of the court based upon the allegations in the petition by social services. Then there's the dispositional phase. Now, this phase determines what actions will be taken by the court with respect to the child over whom the court now has responsibility. So, the adjudicative phase determines whether or not the child should be within the responsibility of the court system, and the dispositional phase is what we do with the child now that he or she is the responsibility of the court. This court points out that the adjudicative hearing was the one held in September of 1968. They note this was where the court was required to find whether the child was within the provisions enabling the court to take responsibility of the child. This is the stage where the father should have requested a jury to let a jury decide whether the court should take responsibility of the little girl. Once responsibility was established, the court could order such actions as is necessary for the best interest of the child. The Court of Appeals goes on in their opinion by saying the challenging circumstances of the parents or the child and the changing circumstances of the parents or the child will undoubtedly compel a review of the initial decision, but the right to a jury at each of those subsequent hearings is not applicable. The Michigan Court of Appeals concluded their decision by ruling an interested party like the father is entitled to a jury trial in juvenile court cases only at the adjudicative stage of the proceedings. That is the time when the court must determine whether it will take responsibility of an allegedly neglected child. Once the finder of fact, be it a jury trial or a bench trial, has made the determination to take responsibility over the child, all subsequent hearings are considered dispositional in nature and are not subject to a jury. In conclusion... The Court of Appeals believes this is a wise policy decision established by the Michigan legislature because of all the avenues of support a judge has provided. The court notes that a judge has the benefits of social, medical, and psychiatric services for the child, thus ensuring the best outcome for the ward. This is not to say the father has no protections. To the contrary, the law gives a father an appellate review of the juvenile judge's decision via the circuit courts up to and including review by the Court of Appeals and the Michigan Supreme Court like we've seen here. Our next case, Wolfenden v. Burke, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1976, involves a dispute over land. Now, this case and another case is going to address how the courts look at jury trials versus bench trials related to land disputes. Here's the fact pattern. It's 1952, and by warranty deed, Mr. O'Haran conveys to Defendant Burke a 22-acre parcel of land. Defendant Burke owns the land for the next 10 years until he eventually conveys the land to our plaintiff, Mr. Wolfenden, also by warranty deed. As part of that deed was the following language. 
Conveyance is made subject to all building restrictions, easements, and reservations in the chain of title or of record, or which would show an examination of the premises. So it is Mr. Wolfenden's understanding that the 22 acres he just purchased is all his to use, own, and enjoy. But not so. Come to find out, as part of that 22-acre parcel, there was a strip of land which was between 8 and 15 feet, which was laying between Thread Creek and the east boundary of his property. A dispute arose between Mr. Wolfenden and the adjoining landowners, one of which was a Mr. Fisher, as to who exactly had title to and use of this strip of land. As such, Mr. Wolfenden sued both the previous two owners, O'Haren and Burke, claiming his warranty to quiet possession was violated due to the dispute Mr. Fisher had over this strip of land. Now, here's where things get a little confusing. When Wolfenden sues O'Haren and Burke, he requests a jury trial. Three months later, though, he amends his lawsuit to also pull in Mr. Fisher, saying that the land in question was Wolfenden's, not Mr. Fisher's property. Mr. Wolfenden also alleges that Mr. Fisher is dumping debris into Thread Creek, which, amongst other things, this debris is causing a diversion of water from the creek's course done to the disadvantage of Mr. Wolfenden. On the day of trial... Mr. Fisher requested the court to hear the lawsuit brought against him, meaning Mr. Fisher, as a bench trial. Mr. Fisher's argument was that the lawsuit filed against him by Wolfenden is one of equity, not of law. And remember, friends, juries get to hear trials of fact, whereas judges hear trials of equity. And the trial judge agreed with Mr. Fisher that the relief being requested by Wolfenden was entirely equitable in nature thus granting the bench trial request. The Michigan Court of Appeals agreed that the actions taken by the judge were correct actions to take. They point out the relevant law here is as follows. Any person, whether he is in possession of the land in question or not, who claims any right in, title to, equitable title to, interest in, or right to possession of land, may bring an action in the circuit courts against any other person who claims or might claim any interest inconsistent with the interest claimed by the plaintiff, whether the defendant is in possession of the land or not. Actions under this section are equitable in nature. The Michigan Court of Appeals denotes that pursuant to Article 1, Section 14, the constitutional right to a jury trial applies in civil actions that were triable by a jury at the time the constitutional guarantee was adopted. But remember, there was no such right to a jury trial where the relief sought was equitable in nature. And the Michigan legislature expressly stated this cause of action was an equitable action. Here in our case at hand, the court notes the pleading drafted by Wolfenden supports the trial court judge's decision that the plaintiff simply wanted injunctive relief against Mr. Fisher. And what injunction did Mr. Wolfenden want? No dumping of debris by Mr. Fisher and to stay off that land. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled that the trial court was correct to hold the trial as a bench trial since this action is equitable in nature. But before I close out this case, I do want to talk about one other cause of action that could have been presented by either party, and that cause of action is called ejectment. And it's exactly what it sounds like. 
ejectment is a legal action requesting a person to be ejected off from land which is not his to be on in the first place. Ejectment is to land as eviction is to housing. Now, here's the thing about ejectment. Ejectment is a common law cause of action, which allowed for jury trials. If one brings an ejectment lawsuit, that would give the parties the right to have their case heard by a jury. And to know whether the case is an ejectment matter, you need to look at the person against whom ejectment is being alleged. If a person is in actual possession of the disputed parcel of land, you would bring forth an ejectment claim requesting the court to order the person to stop interfering with your land. The reason this is relevant is because we're going to discuss it in a bit more detail in our next case, which is New Product Corporation versus Harbor Shores Development, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2014. And I'm jumping to this 2014 case because it ties in so nicely with the topic of land jury trials, and ejectment. As you've no doubt come to learn, I like to present our case reviews in chronological order because case law acts a lot like a chain. Each link builds off the previous link. Most times, it helps to understand a newer case based on the history of previous cases leading up to the newest case. So I will present these cases one link at a time, but with this 2014 case link, it, it's so nicely uh, tying into our aforementioned Wolfenden case from 1976, I'm taking the editorial liberty to just present this case right now. Plus, having grown up in Berrien County, the fact this case arose out of the city of Benton Harbor, a stone's throw from Niles, I wanted to make sure I give it the love and attention it deserves. Again, the power of having your own podcast. The fact pattern is as follows. In 1950, the McDormans owned a 250-foot-wide parcel of land. At the time, and well, let me be clear, they owned a lot more land, but in particular, there was 250 feet of, of, of land, and, and that's going to be the relevant conversation here to this case. At that time, in 1950, engineers needed to relocate the Pawpaw River approximately 500 feet to the north. To facilitate this relocation, the city of Benton Harbor purchased a right-of-way over the McDormans' land for the new channel and transferred to the McDormans a 250-foot-wide parcel located to the south of their existing land. So essentially, the city of Battle Creek took 250 feet of land from one specific area, but then to make up for it, they gave 250 feet of land uh, connected to it at a different portion of the property just to make everything even Stevens, let's say. Although not totally clear in the fact pattern, it sounds like in 1955, our plaintiff's new product corporation acquired the parcel uh, that Benton Harbor had transferred to the McDormans as part of a project to re relocate the river again. Also, not explained in the fact pattern, at some point, the land gets listed as being owned by a fellow by the name of Frank Hoffman. At least the township listed the taxpayer of record for that land as being Frank Hoffman's property. In 1970, the township foreclosed against Mr. Hoffman's property for unpaid taxes. Although the state acquired the property, they transferred it back to Mr. Hoffman in 1973, who apparently owned the land until 1993. At that time, it was purchased by Mr. and Mrs. Held, who continued to own it until Harbor Shores Development 
purchased the parcel from the Helds in 2007. To help complete the building of a golf course, and those of you that live in the area might know it as the Harbor Shores Golf Course, the Harbor Shores development entity conveyed a portion of this land for said golf course. Then, in September 2011, New Products sued the Harbor Shores development as well as the golf course and the city and townships of Benton Harbor and other parties that might claim an interest in the disputed parcel of land. It was New Products' allegation that they were the rightful owners of the parcel of land and that both the development and the golf course wrongly constructed and maintained a golf course on New Products' land. New Products Corporation asked the trial court to permanently stop the development entity, the golf course company, along with the city and township from trespassing on the land and to issue quiet title of the parcel of land to them, the plaintiffs. Additionally, New Products Corporation asked the trial court to declare that none of the defendants have any interest in the parcel of land and to declare that the land falls within the city of Benton Harbor's jurisdiction, not the township's jurisdiction. Lastly, New Products asked for a jury to decide all of the issues we've just discussed. But not so fast, said the Harbor Shores development entity. They wanted to limit the issues to be tried by a jury. They argued that New Products' claim for quiet title, injunctive relief, and declaratory relief were all equitable and should be decided by the court. Harbor Shores Development thought only the claim for damages from trespass should be submitted to a jury if that was even necessary. As a rebuttal, New Products Corporation argued that their claims involve ownership of the land and whether they, meaning New Products Corporation, were entitled to possession of the land are all claims that a jury traditionally decided. They believed that two of their claims, that being quiet title and declaratory relief, were common law actions for ejectment, which our Michigan Constitution views can be decided by a jury. But the court did not agree with new products. The court held that new products never used the term ejectment in their complaint, but instead repeatedly referred to equity and equitable relief. As such, the trial court judge determined that, with the exception of the trespass claim, all the other allegations were equitable in nature and should be tried by the court, not a jury. The first thing this Court of Appeals set of judges points out is that the law at issue here is the same law at issue in our previous Wolfenden case. Specifically, that the legislature determined an action for quiet title is equitable in nature. So the Court of Appeals has to determine whether the claims brought forth by New Products Corporation were something that was traditionally heard by a jury or if they were a new right granted by the Michigan legislature. Because if this is a new right granted by the legislature, they have every right to make the causes of action equitable and subject to a bench trial. So much of this court's opinion reiterates that notion of what was considered the right to a jury trial prior to the adoption of the Michigan Constitution versus was it a right created by the Michigan legislature after the adoption of our 1908 and 1963 Michigan Constitutions. And as such, I shan't waste our time discussing it further, except to say the Court of Appeals judges thoroughly agree the trespass allegation must be heard by a jury, that the trial judge got that 100% correct. Next, 
we then move into whether the trial court erred when it determined new products claims must be decided by the trial court sitting in equity. The court first looks to the intent of the legislature. By expressly stating the actions under this law are equitable in nature, the legislature leaves no doubt of their intention. Therefore, the Court of Appeals did not believe the judge undertook any liberties due to ambiguity. Equity was the clear intent of the legislature. Having determined the legislature intended these causes of actions to be decided by the trial court, next, the Court of Appeals then had to examine whether the legislature violated Article 1, Section 14. And in order for the court to make that determination, it looked to see if this cause of action was similar in nature to cases which do provide the right to a jury trial before the Michigan Constitution was adopted. So that's the next thing the court does. It, it starts looking at which actions were available prior to the 1963 Constitution. The Michigan Court of Appeals breaks this conversation into two pieces, ejectment and quiet title. Let's start with ejectment first. When a plaintiff brings an ejectment case before a jury, the jury's decision in favor of the plaintiff is considered vindication of the plaintiff's right to possess that land. Because an action for ejectment involves the concept of wrongful disposition, you know, essentially that the defendant disposed the plaintiff of the land, a plaintiff could not bring the action if he was in actual possession of the property. For these reasons, the only remedies available to a plaintiff who prevailed in an action for ejectment were damages for the trespass and a declaration of full and proper possession. Now, to be clear, actions for ejectment frequently involved competing claims of ownership, which the jury would have to resolve in order to determine which party had the right to possess that property. For that reason, an action for ejectment was a proper action for resolving disputes concerning who held legal title to the property and the right to immediate possession. An action for ejectment was an action at law and had to be submitted to a jury. The right to have a jury determine actions in ejectment ensured that a person would not be deceased except from a judgment by his peers. The action for ejectment concerns parties who each claimed legal title to the property. <laughs> wow, I, I, I'm not sure how clear that preceding paragraph is, so let me present ejectment in this manner. The idea of ejectment would be if there's a piece of land where two people are claiming ownership over it. It's a rarity in 2021 that anyone attempts to be squatters on land and take ownership of it. More realistically, you've got two people who each believe that they, have, that they are the proper owners over the disputed strip of land, and one of those two individuals is physically occupying that disputed land. If you, dear listener, believe that I was illegally occupying a strip of land that you rightfully owned, and if you wanted a jury trial, you sue me in court requesting the jury to eject me from that land I'm physically occupying. If the jury comes back in your favor, congratulations, you have successfully ejected me off that land and now I have to pay you damages for having illegally occupied your land. Okay, how'd I do? Does that better explain what ejectment is and how it operates? I hope so because now we're going to move on to the next step of the Court of Appeals opinion, an action for quiet title. An action for quiet title, on the other hand, did not normally involve competing claims of legal title or the right to possession. 
Instead, it addresses interests that might impair a party's ability to convey legal title. Requesting quiet title was intended to reach people who were not in possession and therefore who could not be compelled to defend their rights at law. A plaintiff claiming legal title could not assert a claim to quiet title against a party in actual possession of that property. If that's what's happening, then the plaintiff normally had to proceed via an action for ejectment. As should be completely clear at this point in the podcast, the parties to a claim involving equity did not have a right to a trial by jury. Those claims had to be decided by the trial court sitting in equity. The reason for this you're probably wondering, a court sitting in equity also has jurisdiction to take actions that might indirectly affect interests in title. So, for example, the court could void, rescind, or reform deeds and create or modify interests in land under various equitable theories. Also, a trial court can consider the full scope of an equitable defense to a claim asserting an interest in a land. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, okay, time out. Let's, let's do a layman's, uh, a layman's explanation. Have you ever had a neighbor who mows their lawn so far over that they're likely mowing onto your property? Well, what if that neighbor thinks the area that he's mowing is actually his? What if you're wrong and it's not your property he's mowing? It legitimately is his. If you believe your neighbor is mowing your lawn, but the neighbor believes he's mowing his lawn, you might go to court and ask a court to give you the equitable relief of quiet title. Nobody is per se uh, uh, physically occupying your property, but it is a dispute between where your lawn ends and your neighbor's lawn begins. Asking a judge to make that legal decision is an example of seeking quiet title. Quiet title is nothing more than a legal decision over who has exclusive and unfettered ownership of the land to use and to do with as the sole exclusive owner wishes to do. So, back to our case at issue. This law represents the legislature's effort to provide a simplified cause of action to address almost every possible competing interest in real property. The legislature provided that a plaintiff who claims any interest in a particular piece of real property may sue any other person with a competing claim to that property. The law reads as follows. Any person, whether he is in possession of the land in question or not, who claims any right in, title to, equitable title to, interest in, or right to possession of land, may bring an action in the circuit courts against any other person who claims or might claim any interest inconsistent with the interest claimed by the plaintiff, whether the defendant is in possession of the land or not. Actions under this section are equitable in nature. The Court of Appeals points out that the statute does not limit the interests that may be resolved to those arising at law. Instead, a plaintiff may sue even when relying on an interest that arises in equity and may sue another person on the mere possibility that the other person might make a claim that is inconsistent with the plaintiff's ownership interests. Additionally, the court notes the Michigan legislature provided that the plaintiff may sue whether or not he is in possession of the land in question. Therefore, a plaintiff in possession is not prevented from suing to confirm his title and the right to possession, but he would be prevented from bringing an ejectment lawsuit. Why? Because the plaintiff is in possession of the land. Remember, 
With an ejectment lawsuit, you have to prove someone who does not have a legal right to be on your land is indeed on your land. Whereas, with the right to quiet title, you can sue anyone you believe may have some legal right to your land. The difference, on a very basic level, is whether or not your named defendant is physically occupying your land. For those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals did not believe that the legislature combined the common law right to ejectment with the equitable right to quiet title. To the contrary, the judges believed the legislature crafted these causes of actions to broadly apply to every dispute involving a claimed interest in real property, thus letting the plaintiff decide which direction, ejectment or quiet title, the plaintiff thought most legally sound. And this is where New Products Corporation lost at the Court of Appeals. The court noted in New Products' complaint, they specifically asked the trial court to grant them equitable relief and quiet title using the law we're discussing. More so, they asked for that relief against every defendant regarding this property. New Products Corporation could not obtain the equitable relief it asked for if it wanted to go the ejectment route. Resolving their claimed interest in the land, and obtaining legal title is a matter of equity, which is determined by a judge. They never asked for ejectment, and ejectment likely wasn't the solution they were seeking. They wanted to take the benefits of obtaining legal title under equity and try to superimpose it over a trial by jury. But that's not how it works. They can't take something created by the legislature and deemed to be a bench trial lawsuit and apply that under a common law right to jury trial. Ejectment was known in common law, and that could have been how new products got themselves in front of a jury. But ejectment by the defendants would still have left it unclear who actually holds legal title to that land. For those reasons, the Court of Appeals affirmed the decision of the trial judge who ruled a bench trial for new products lawsuit was the proper avenue for these cases. And that's going to do it for episode number 37 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.